for those of you that don't know Terry Walls, which you should because she has been in the news as she should be for some period of time through her remarkable advocacy in uh, the whole area of neuromuscular and neurological related dysfunctions um, and her background as a medical school professor, researcher, and uh, a, a physician of great note in her own life. And I think I recall first meeting Dr. Walls, uh, who was in a wheelchair at the time, as I recall, sitting in the front row of a seminar that I was doing in Chicago. And even in that state, where she was uh, somewhat limited in her mobility, her spirit and energy radiated forward that this was a woman of substance. So um, Terry, a little, tell us a little bit about this, uh, this transition that sure. led you into the woman that uh, you are now nationally are. So <clears throat> I'm a academic internal medicine doc uh, at the University of Iowa. And I thought, you know, these uh, complementary medicine, supplements, diets, uh, was all a bunch of hooey, uh, uh, a waste of money and time. I was very skeptical. And, yeah, but God works in mysterious ways. And uh, so I was uh, diagnosed with MS in 2000. I uh, knew it was a progressive disease, went to the best people in the country, took the newest drugs, including uh, Tizabri. Had seven years of going steadily downhill. Um, but, you know, when I hit that wheelchair, I realized that conventional medicine wasn't stopping this steady decline, and that's when I began really searching and would uh, begin experimenting on myself, uh, first with the paleo diet, uh, the ancestral health movement, and then I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine uh, and uh, took the course on neuroprotection. Uh, in the midst of some brain fog, I might add, so that was uh, a lot of work to get through that, uh, which deepened my understanding. Uh, and then I integrated that with everything I'd done thus far. Uh, and uh, ended up creating a protocol, it, all in an attempt, uh, Jeff, to just slow the decline, because I knew what my docs had been telling me, that progressive MS is only downhill. You never expect to uh, restore functions. Uh, but of course, the surprising thing was it stopped the decline. And then uh, with remarkable speed, uh, my mental clarity improved, energy improved, um, pain uh, melted away. Uh, and then I began uh, walking around the hospital, stunning everyone, including my uh, personal physicians. Uh, and then I got on my bike uh, and started biking again. Uh, and so this transformed uh, me as a person, as a physician. Uh, fortunately, my chief of staff and my uh, chief of medicine at that time uh, told me that they really needed to redirect my research project. Uh, and I would ultimately redesign and refocus my research into studying the effect of uh, diet and lifestyle to treat MS and other progressive diseases. It's been a, quite a journey, quite oh, a journey. Oh, and the, you're still on it, and uh, it's not over, and you're going to still be transforming uh, millions of people's perceptions over the next years to come. So let me talk a little bit about uh, the nature of being a lightning rod for change, of which you are. So it's, it's a little bit of a complicated equation, isn't it? It's, a, oh, it's, yeah. it's one of those good news, bad news, put and take kind of situations. So the good news is obviously you provide enlightenment and hope and opportunity for people who might have said, oh my word, there is no solution. I'm just dead in the water and uh, I just have to suffer under it. Well, you know, originally, so yeah, this, this transformation you know, occurs in the late 2007, 2008. Uh, is remarkable change. Uh, and I begin... Uh, uh, talk to the public uh, at first, uh, small organic grocery store. Uh, and then, uh, before I know it, the MS Society local group wants 
me to talk. Uh, and that results in my having to be interviewed by the Clinical Advisory Committee uh, for the region. And I'm interviewed, and, and they're horrified by what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, and, I was, and I was very careful to make no claims other, other than to say, this is my experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but that made them very concerned that I was creating false hope. And so I was banned. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I was a banned speaker, but I spoke where I was welcome. Uh, and uh, my chairman called me and said, okay, what's going on? Why are you a banned speaker? Um, and actually, you ended up being incredibly helpful because uh, my colleagues at the university then taught me, you know, we have to make sure you know how to talk about this theory, how to document the medical record, because people may file complaints and we need you to be able to pass peer review. Mm -hmm. So I got a lot mm -hmm. of coaching on how to uh, protect myself, protect um, the integrity of the message. Uh, and that was very helpful. And it was probably also incredibly helpful that my chairman, uh, who was a rheumatologist, uh, was so impressed with this unlikely recovery that he was a huge advocate for my uh, publishing in the literature uh, and doing, refocusing my research uh, on this very question. So I think that this is, there's several elements, aren't there, here? There's you, yeah. obviously, and your way that you approach this challenge in your life, and of course your medical background and training, which gave you some leverage of understanding some of this from a physiological perspective. But then there's the environment you found yourself, which is you have maybe the right chairman of your department. Absolutely. You had the right family support system. I mean, there's a variety of things that have to kind of come together. You might call them serendipity, that all when they magically connect can produce make, make unexpected things to happen. So uh, let me talk about one of those unexpected things. I'm sure you would consider it unexpected, and that's Ted Med, right? Which is another yes, device. Yes, yes. That you, so tell us a little bit about that. Well, you know, it's, um, so I, I, I'm having more visibility, uh, and uh, local Iowa City chapter has a TEDx talk uh, being planned. Uh, and I know uh, the organizers, I put forth a proposal uh, and uh, we put this up. Now, I interestingly enough, when I, uh, my sons sat me down and said, Terry, this is the most important lecture you've ever <laughs> given in your life. You're going to write it out, uh, practice. We're going to work with an editor. Uh, so he, w he knew how important this was. Uh, and so I, I did that. And actually, the talk I gave was my 23rd version. So that's oh, how, much, wow. how oh. much time I put in that. And I scheduled it six times around the university to practice and get critique and feedback. Wow. So, because I, I knew Zach was right, how vital it was that I get this exactly as well polished and thought out as I could. So then it, it, it goes live uh, and one wonders if people will access it and then what's the result? Well, it, it went viral. It did <laughs> extraordinarily well. You know, I, I think the, the message resonated uh, in the ancestral health community because uh, I gave them a lot of credit. It resonated in the functional medicine community because I gave them uh, a lot of credit. And it, of course, resonated in the MS and chronic disease uh, community because it gave them hope. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I kept getting more and more visibility. Then uh, this led uh, to uh, the university getting sort of nervous about, oh my god, this is really blowing up. Uh, and so people weren't quite sure uh, what to make of that. Fortunately, the president of the university loved it. And wow. so uh, then I ended up doing a presidential uh, lecture for the university uh, as well. So uh, that secured more um, support within the university. So there's a very interesting 
kind of observation that I'm making, uh, which has been a dialectic that goes on in our community for some time as to how change occurs, how these paradigms can shift. Well, there is this one view uh, that suggests that the paradigms shift principally by convincing the people that are in the regulatory bodies and are in the seats of authority and, and the decision makers in C-suites are going to be convinced to make changes within their organizational structure to accommodate these new observations. That's one view. The other view is no, actually it's a grassroots thing because the constituents down below who are not really that well informed but have high personal interest and, and commitment to the concept push up into the system to cause this change. How do you see it? Change happens from the bottom up. Change happens because uh, the constituents, the public, uh, creates the environment for that change to become more and more and more attractive. Uh, so one of my decisions very early on and, and this was controversial. There, there are plenty of folks at the, at, at the university and the VA who really did not like I had made this decision, but I felt morally bound to teach the public what I was doing uh, at the same time that I was trying to teach clinicians who were interested to do my clinical uh, research and get the papers out. Uh, because the public, the people with chronic disease, they can't wait another 10 to 20 years yeah. for these clinical studies to come out. They're going to be demented uh, in refractory pain and totally disabled. So I put it out there for people who are ready for action and who want to try this relatively safe diet and lifestyle interventions could try them. People who, who want to have security of the clinical trials, I'm doing them. Mm -hmm. And the clinicians who are intrigued by what I'm doing, want to learn about it, I'll teach them. You're here. So now that goes back to from the bubbling up from the grassroots up, uh, these are not things that generally uh, medical academics are taught. Uh, you don't know generally about social media, you don't know about consumer activism, these are not things we are educated about. Oh, yeah, no. So, But you have two remarkable children, right? A son and a daughter who yes. are of a different generation. And, and so tell us a little bit about that support and how that led into your kind of seeing how this energy that you had could be properly manifest into the system. Well, it was incredibly helpful. You know, my son had given a, a, a uh, testimony at the Iowa legislature uh, defending his two moms uh, for the Iowa Judicial Committee that had uh, uh, been recorded unbeknownst to him. And it went viral. And he had like 24 uh, million views. Uh, and so he immediately saw the power of um, the internet uh, and how your life changes when that happens. Uh, and so uh, when we had this opportunity to do this, uh, TEDx talk, he said, this is incredibly uh, important that we get this right for you. So he spent a lot of time coaching me uh, on the nature of that talk. Uh, and then as that went viral, uh, he uh, and I had a lot of conversations about the importance of, uh, of my having a more visible internet, social media presence. Mm -hmm. uh, it helped me get that staffed with people who could uh, navigate that for me. Uh, and of course, the, all this was making the university sort of nervous, so they were talking with me about, you have to be very careful about what you're saying and doing on the internet, so that again, we, we aren't creating um, uh, conflicts for you with any of the regulatory agencies. Yes. Um, so, and that was uh, extremely useful to have my young children helping me yes. navigate uh, the social media, uh, and the university helping me navigate uh, the uh, proper way uh, to have that messaging. So I could keep everybody happy, any peer reviews I'd have to face, make sure I was gonna uh, pass all of that. Uh, because you, you can easily get yourself into trouble either way. Yes. So 
There's another constituency, there's, there are many nodes of constituency that were part of your support system, but another one that I can think of are the functional medicine community, the, the uh, practitioners who now call themselves affiliated with the functional medicine movement. Did you feel that support at all during the course of all of this uh, uh, messaging? You know, uh, I did not know enough to reach out to them. Uh, so I was just beginning to uh, 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 get more involved with functional medicine because originally, traveling you know, was still pretty tough for me. So I was using more of the online uh, resources and I was not deeply connected yet. Uh, uh, now fortunately for me, there were some functional medicine practitioners in the community uh, in Iowa City who reached out to me and said, Terry, I don't think you know that we're here. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I did get some local support that way. And, that and I think it's really interesting, and thank you for, for saying that, because what happens is you develop a new community that didn't exist before. By your experience and your articulate way that you expressed your experience and the support that you got, that then radiated out through these mechanisms you described to the functional medicine community that starts to develop a new community, which is the Terry Walls functional medicine community, right? So yes, this yes. is how you broaden, uh, I think, it's like a zone of, um, of impact. Uh, you start building out new layers of zone of impact in which you start uh, inadvertently recruiting people that are affiliated with your message. So that leads us then into coming back to revisit the MS Society, which at one time had kind of eschewed your model. So how did that oh, kind of cycle around? You know, this is uh, uh, pretty fun. So uh, now, 2009, I banned uh, fortunately, the university got me uh, going on my little research, uh, and I got funding uh, from the Canadians to get our pilot study going. So we've got that research going. I'm getting uh, preliminary data. I'm writing grants. Uh, the neurologists on those review committees think I'm crazy. I write scathing, scathing reviews. I clearly do not understand the pathophysiology of MS. Uh, but I keep writing my grants. I use our preliminary data, and they, they just can't believe my preliminary data. Uh, and then it's published in a peer-reviewed journal, so that helps you out a lot. Uh, then my book is released, uh, and it becomes a bestseller, uh, and uh, the MS Society monitors social media to see what their uh, constituents are talking about. And all at once, after my book came out, <laughs> the mentions of diet and lifestyle and exercise explode, clearly overwhelming all the conversation about uh, the biologic agents. Mm -hmm. So in a matter of three months, they're like, oh my god, we, we've got to have a wellness conference. We need to get walls there. Uh, so they finally get me tracked down on the phone, invite me, and I say, well, um, you know, I, I can rearrange my schedule, try and come, but you know, I am a banned speaker. Uh, <laughs> and so I don't know that, that you really want me because you've banned me. And so they're very apologetic. Uh, I come uh, in through a bunch of dialogue. Uh, I help them uh, uh, shift their priorities, realizing that uh, dietary lifestyle research needs to be a higher priority. And I also push them that they have to change their scientific review panels to put people on the review panels that do dietary research because it's a very different kind of research with different expertise needed for these critical reviews. Uh, then the next thing that happens is they put out a call for uh, proposals. And because I've been doing research uh, with one of uh, some of the best uh, dietary intervention researchers in the country uh, with my pilot studies, and we now have peer-reviewed published pilot data, um, we have a very strong proposal. 
Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, they gave us uh, over a million dollars, almost uh, 1.5. And if I understand this correctly, uh, we, because dietary intervention research is so expensive to do, uh, we are the largest uh, uh, award they've given to a clinical wow. study. Wow, congratulations. So that's very cool. So, that's you know, really it's cool. very fast, 2009 to 2016, uh, to go from banned to funded yes. with over a million dollars worth of research. So, so that, uh, this is a question that I've never had the opportunity to ask you, and I, and I hope it doesn't put you on the spot, but um, uh, I was uh, a product of my medical training at the Oregon uh, Health Sciences University in Portland, Oregon that had a gentleman by the name of Dwayne Swank there who oh, yeah, yeah. was a neurologist uh, who had the Swank diet yeah. approach to the management of MS. And that was, uh, uh, you know, fairly heavily discussed back in the, my early days, which would have been the, 70, the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So did you have any, was there any memory effect of that that colored how people responded to your? Oh, sure. So what, what we ended up doing uh, in, um, in our proposal is we have a parallel group design comparing the Swank diet and Wall's diet after an observation period. Um, so we can see does either diet improve quality of life uh, in a prospective study and which diet has superior results, if any. Uh, and I think it'll be really very interesting uh, to see what happens. Um, I'd say that we have some technical challenges to make sure people don't blend the two diets. We keep them distinct in the mm -hmm. intervention arms, et cetera. Um, and I will say Swank uh, was brilliant in that he, he was the first one to say diet matters. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm really uh, pleased with his work. And I think he got a lot, uh, a lot right uh, and that he's uh, added uh, cod liver oil. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, was the first one to get the omega-3s in there, to get vitamin A in there, to get vitamin D in there. So he, there were a lot, of, a, a lot of what he's got in that diet, uh, which is very good. Didn't talk about sugar. That was unfortunate. That's right. Yes. So I, I, I'll just say I knew Dr. Swank. I, I mean, he was a senior guy when I was there. Um, he was an um, absolute uh, patient uh, rights advocate. He was a very, very strong believer that there had to be a better approach than the way that it had been um, treated. And uh, he suffered through many, many uh, indignations and uh, uh, criticisms for his belief that diet and lifestyle could have something to do with this condition. And I recall in speaking with him one time in which he said, you know, I find myself similar in the way that I'm speaking to the medical audience to what uh, Hans Selye must have uh, felt when he was talking about stress and in the early days of stress physiology that none of his colleagues uh, really believed there was such a thing. And, and then he wrote a book, which was a bestseller, that went to the consumer, and that just killed him in the guild because once he went outside of academics and he wrote to the general consumer, and that's what really birthed the stress movement was his book to the consumer. Yeah. And Swank was saying, you know, I, I'm having that similar thing. I've now written a book to the general consumer. Now I'm, I'm going to be blacklisted by my professional colleagues. Uh, how does that affect your professional reputation? Well, you know, people uh, told me the same thing would happen. Uh, some people at the university said it was a terrible mistake to uh, write my book. And I said, this is what I have to do morally. I have to put this out there because I have this moral obligation to everyone yep. else who's suffering. Uh, and so that's what I'm going to do. I, and, and so now, you know what the university is saying? Because uh, the book went out. I, I got funded. Uh, now we all have uh, philanthropist cold calling to give money into my research lab. Uh, and so now the university is saying, could you talk to some of our other uh, uh, scientists? They need to be more entrepreneurial like you. <laughs> oh, I love it. So, oh, boy. So uh, you just have to do what feels morally right yes. uh, and pursue that. 
So let me go to a kind of a little more philosophical question, which I think you're a, you're, you have great under, insight into, and that is this, uh, this view that we've had in uh, development of pharmaceutical science over the years of uh, single target, single hit, you know, one drug for one illness type of mentality versus multimodal. And when yes. we think of lifestyle intervention, it's certainly not one target, one drug. It's multimodal. Many things are going on simultaneously. And a lot of people are uncomfortable with the concept of how do you design a study to look at something multimodal. It's more e easy to think of one agent against a placebo against one target, one endpoint. So how do you describe your lifestyle diet intervention because it is a multimodal intervention? Uh, you know, when I, when I teach this uh, to the public and I teach it to my clinicians, I talk about I'm creating health. And I'm using what we know uh, in terms of the science and the ancestral health cultural models uh, what are the attributes of health? Uh, what are the attributes in terms of the uh, dietary, lifestyle, environmental factors associated with uh, better health outcomes? And that's the basis of the types of interventions that uh, I design. Uh, we're much more interested in uh, measuring impact on quality of life and then some secondary measures in terms of function. Uh, and now, because we have this philanthropic money coming in, and my basic science colleagues know that I'm freezing blood and poop, they're like, you know, could we study some of the mechanisms behind what's happening in the stuff you do? Um, and so I let my basic scientists uh, mop up behind me to understand the mechanisms. Uh, and I'm really looking at uh, trying to uh, merge the ancestral uh, wellness uh, and functional medicine uh, way of thinking. I think this is so important <clears throat> what you just said, and I, I don't want to overemphasize because many things you're saying are extraordinarily insightful. but. To me, what you just said is like a beacon of white light because there is this view uh, that the system of healthcare must be designed around certain kinds of well-established mechanism of action before we take action because only through understanding a specific MOA, mechanism of action, can we feel safe that we are doing something rational. And clearly, what you're saying, and I absolutely understand because it's a, it's a fundamental concept within functional medicine, is the clinical observation world, which is really where the tire meets the road, then needs to be met and underpinned by the basic science, but they're not mutually inconsistent. You can make decisions based upon clinical observation if at worst you're doing no harm. Oh, correct, correct. You know, and now I'm getting to have conversations with uh, uh, some of the basic scientists who are like, you know, we usually have to stay things in mice for a long time, sort of guess what we're doing, and do it in a human study. What you're giving us is the opportunity to study interventions that you're demonstrating work in humans, and now we get to follow up behind you to try and understand the mechanisms of how it works. Exactly, and I think it's so fascinating when we think about how medicine, in, in with the capital M, evolved. It, it evolved all around observation. It didn't evolve around a single uh, discovery of a new biological mechanism. That's very interesting from the body of knowledge. But it was really through observation of how that kind of concept applied to a human life that led to improved mm -hmm. quality or outcome. I think that what you have taught us through your experience is to broaden our base, our, our, our window, to bring information in so that it can really accelerate the translation in an individual so that what appears as a miracle for one can be extrapolated to a miracle for many so that it becomes a standard of practice later. Yes, yes. You know, and um, so I, another area that I'm trying to uh, add now is to add additional disease states. 
uh, into the types of interventions that we're uh, looking at. And again, um, uh, this will require philanthropic support for that initial collection mm -hmm. of uh, pilot data. Uh, but uh, again, probably thanks to the internet and my entrepreneurial side, that visibility and those relationships are growing. Uh, so I'm very, I, I'm extraordinarily optimistic that we'll be able to continue to add additional disease states that we'll study. So as you look at your body of work and your contributions and you forecast out uh, where you would like it to go, your vision, your dreaming, your, your big, uh, hairy, audacious uh, goal, what, what would it be? An epidemic of health. We're going to uh, reach out to the public, have them understand that health is in their hands. Uh, they have all the tools that they need. Uh, I want people to understand you don't have to be wealthy to do this. People living on food stamps uh, could begin to make these changes as well. Uh, and that the future is this epidemic of health driven by learning how to cook at home, uh, driven by teaching our children to value vegetables, grow vegetables, uh, driven by uh, healthcare policy that starts with home economics classes in elementary school and junior high school. Uh, this is key if we're going to have an epidemic of health instead of an epidemic of disease.